Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a new episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Because we're new to the world of podcasts, taking time to give us a review or a thumbs up will mean a great deal to us and will help us reach more people. Our goal is to allow the wisdom, honesty, and encouragement found in the life and writings of Henry Nouwen to speak to a world hungry for meaning. Now let me introduce today's very special podcast. Dr. Sean Mulrooney is the chair of the Henry Nouwen Society. Sean is also a professor of philosophy at St. Augustine Seminary and at Regis College here in Toronto. In the spring of this year, we asked Sean to lead a one-day retreat here in Toronto. The theme was Alone in the Desert, a Lenten retreat with Henry Nouwen as guide. This was intended to be a meditation on loneliness and what to do about it. Despite having the internet and social media, more and more of us are feeling alone and disconnected. Sean helps us understand why this is and what we can do about it. How we can connect more with ourselves and with our community and with our God. I invite you to listen to Dr. Sean Mulrooney on this very special podcast for now and then. So, you know, uh, I've been preparing for this talk for a couple of months, actually, and, you know, getting my ducks in order and what do I want to talk about? How am I going to focus it? And it's something, when you have a focus, uh, everything in your life tends to support the focus. And so uh, a friend uh, uh, was, uh, sent me an email having nothing to do with my talk, and the, she sent me a poem by email, and uh, what the poem is about is precisely what we're doing here. I didn't ask for it, it just showed up, I love it. Yeah, come on in and have a seat. Um, if, if you're not in your uh, old seat, you can get into a new seat, so do, uh, do feel free. We've got a couple up here, so come on in. So I want to share this poem uh, with you. It's by uh, actually a very well-known American poet. Uh, her name is Mary Oliver. Uh, she died last month, and she is the favorite poem of a, a favorite poet of many people. We got a seat up here if you'd like to come. Anyway, as you wish. This is a poem uh, called "Wild Geese." You do not have to be good. Already I'm feeling better about myself. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. For me, this is what I was just saying. What we need to do, more than saying, I'm a horrible person, I've got to go out in the desert and do penance and starve myself and that, you have to go out into the desert to rediscover your heart, who you are and what you love. Let me read it again. You don't have to be good. You don't have to walk on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours 
and I will tell you mine. What do you think the small groups are about? <laughs> Saying, this is what happened in my childhood. This is what's keeping me back from life. Tell me about the spare yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes, over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese, high in the clean blue air, are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over announcing your place in the family of things. Yay, Mary Oliver, is what I say. Now, I can imagine someone saying to me, Sean, what you've given us so far is fine, but it is also the worst kind of psychological narcissism. And when I say I imagine someone, I imagine my younger brother saying this to me. So far, you have been asking us to look at what makes me lonely and what keeps me from being happy. And there has been no talk of God at all. But Christianity is not about love of self, but about love of God and love of neighbor. So what's going on? In response, I will quote a passage from Henry Nouwen's Wounded Healer. If we don't tend to our own wounds, the fulfillment of our unrecognized needs becomes our concern. This is very true. If you have, if you have uh, somebody in your family who's like this, or if you're like this, if you have something in your past that you are very angry about, you will be angry with everybody that you meet. You're not conscious of being angry, but you will be angry with everyone you meet, and everyone will feel your anger. So Henry says this, if we don't tend to our own wounds, the fulfillment of our unrecognized needs becomes our concern. Temporary concentrating on ourselves is a precondition for true hospitality. So that's why I say you go out into the desert and look at your wounds, look at your false self, uh, look and find out who you are, and then you can be open to connecting with other people. But speaking of God, I do want to speak of God in this second uh, talk. And this is what uh, the first talk was, the human journey into loneliness. And the second talk is called The Christian Journey Away from Loneliness. Who do we expect God to be? I think for most of us, God is the boss. God's powerful. Actually, according to Judeo-Christian teaching, God is all-powerful. Now, if your goal in life is to get power for yourself, encountering an omnipotent being is very bad news. 
It's uh, going, to see, going to see God then becomes like going to a principal's office when you're very small. Like all other powerful people in your life, God becomes a threat. You think, I better not make him angry or I am in big trouble. And if you see God as the boss, then you're not going to look for him. You are not going to seek him. On the contrary, you are going to try to avoid him or appease him or charm him or trick him into liking you. That's what you do with people who are the boss. But the Christian story is that that is not who God is. According to Christians, God's perfect self-revelation is in Jesus Christ. The question of God now becomes, who is Jesus Christ? Well, that's what the Gospels are about. At the beginning of the Synoptic Gospels, when Jesus is baptized in the River Jordan, the skies open and a voice declares, this is my beloved son. Um, could you give me some reverb there? No, you, you don't have to. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. As many of you know, in the life of the beloved, Henry says that since Jesus is both perfect God and also perfect human, the words, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased, is spoken by God not just to Jesus, but to every human being. You are my beloved. And at this point, my first reaction when I read this in Life of the Beloved by Henry is when you hear, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased, this is my reaction. Who are you talking to? You must be talking to somebody behind me. It's when, like, that beautiful woman waves high like this, and you wave high back, and you think, oh, this is nice. She's waving at somebody behind you. It's not you, okay? And this is the, you are my beloved. Is That's how we all feel. Uh, who are you talking to? Which is very interesting. It shows you where our self-image is for most people. Um, but... Um, it really is pretty unbelievable uh, to hear, um, you are my beloved. It's not what we expect when we go to the principal's office, right? I wonder if that's ever happened. <laughs> You're hauled out onto the carpet, and that's what you hear. Anyway, Henry says, over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power. But what's the biggest problem, according to Henry? Self-rejection. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us beloved. Who is God? According to Christians, God is someone who offers us unconditional love and nothing else. Actually, God doesn't just offer us unconditional love. God is unconditional love. Anne Lamott put the point humorously. She said, God has to love you. It's his job. 
I would put it slightly differently. God has to love you. It's his nature. So imagine being called into God's office, being called into the big principal's office. What do you think that God might say to you? God isn't just in a good mood at the baptism of his son. Throughout the whole New Testament, this is the story. For instance, consider the parable of the prodigal son. After the youngest son has disrespected his father by demanding his inheritance, his inheritance while his father is still alive, and uh, in, the, uh, in the culture of the time, Asking for your inheritance while your father is alive is saying, I wish you were dead. Give me the money now. So after the son has disrespected his father in that way, and then he has lost all his money at the casino. He comes back and he asks to be taken back into his father's household. Uh, as hired help. The father doesn't listen to his wayward son's apology. The father doesn't wait for the son to come back. The father is outside the house. He's been watching 
for his stupid son to come back. And when he sees him from a long distance off, the father runs out to see him. And when the son says, look, I'll make a deal. I'll come back to you if you treat me as a hired, uh, as a hired servant. And the father won't hear it. He'll say, my son is back. This is it. Not only will I accept you back, I will, we will have a party. We will have a celebration because my son who was dead to me has come back. So the father doesn't say, well, maybe I'll take you back. The father is out there waiting for him, shaking with delight because his beloved has come back to him. That's what love looks like. It's not very confusing. It's very unconfusing. That is what love looks like. Believing that God is love and nothing but is a game changer. It's not the way we think of God. Is God really someone who affirms you in the deepest core of your being? You know, that's not how most religious people act. That's not how most Catholics act. That's not how most priests act. If religious people were characterized by, the, by their affirmation of others in the deepest core of their being, there would be no sex scandals. There would be no virulent anti-Catholic sentiment. The churches would not be empty if that's how Christians behaved. But back to our story. It's important to recall that it was only after Jesus had received the news that he was God's beloved that he was sent out into the desert. You can't go to the desert and drop your power and false self unless you know that there is a true lovable self underneath the false self. So what happens to you when you're alone in the desert? Well, let me tell you what the desert is. The desert, of course, is a place of emptiness. There's no water. There's no shelter. There's no food. And there's no other people. The desert is where you have no roots. There are no distractions to hide behind. No cell phones. And there are no distractions where, so we have to face ourselves. We can't survive on our own. The desert is meant to keep us searching because we lack comfort, efficiency, security, and community. The desert is a place where there's no charming other people. There's no obeying other people. There's no commanding other people. It's just you. And then the fateful question arises. Who are you when you're not supported and held straight by your wealth, by your beauty, by your connections? What remains of you when all that could be stripped away has been stripped away? 
The emptiness and austerity of the wilderness strips one of any, any illusion of self-sufficiency and self-reliance and turns one into a beginning when life started. In the desert, you're without power. If you're strong, it doesn't matter. If you're good-looking, it doesn't matter. If you're talented, it doesn't matter. If you're rich, it doesn't matter. So what happens in this place where you are stripped of all power? Let me tell you the first thing that happens. You will certainly have an opportunity to become aware of your false self, of how you have relied on power to live in the world. That's the first step. Once you do that, if you listen hard, you will probably get a glimpse of your true self. You know, it's not just uh, Christians, but in most cultures in the world, there is a place and a time where you go out into the wilderness to find out who you are. Indigenous people in North America call it the vision quest. And you go, and it's very serious, is that you are not only without food for three days, you're also without water for three days. This is pretty heavy duty. You're really getting down to nothing, to just you. And what happens to you when it's just you? You're stripped of your false self, so you will discover your true self. But since all, you'll find a good thing happens, though. Since all your energy previously has been focused on the illusory desire for power, when you stop suppressing your heart's desires, much energy suddenly becomes available. And one thing is certain, you can neither manufacture your real desires nor choose them. Instead, in the silence, you will discover your true desires. How do you do that? You just be quiet and listen. You may be surprised at what you find. And finally, perhaps, you will even hear the voice of God, but you won't know until you uh, go out and do it. So when Jesus went to the desert, what did he find? Well, maybe he found God in the desert, but he certainly found his demons as well. That's why Jesus had to hear that he was God's beloved before he went into the desert. Facing the demons on your own is a very scary thing. So what happens? Who did Jesus meet in the desert? His demons. And his temptations are three. The first was, turn these stones into bread. The second, throw yourself off the top of the temple and angels will catch you. And the third, bow down and worship me, worship Satan, and I will give you dominion over all you see. In, in the name of Jesus, Henry names these temptations as the temptation to be relevant, turn these stones into bread, the temptation to be spectacular, 
throw yourself off the top of the temple and angels will catch you. And the temptation to be powerful. Bow down and worship me and I will give dominion over all you can see. So relevance, being relevant, being spectacular, and being powerful are the temptations of Jesus in the desert. Now the uh, response to these temptations is not, I hope, to be irrelevant, to be boring, and to be impotent. Rather, since Jesus knows he is God's beloved because he has been told, he doesn't have to please others by being relevant, spectacular, and powerful. That's what you do on Instagram. You show how relevant, spectacular, and powerful you are. Uh, but just so, because Jesus know, knew that he was God's beloved, he could withstand the temptations. And just as Jesus, so for us too, our identities and well-being do not depend on what the needy people around us who coerce us to do their bidding want us to do. Our identities and well-being lie in our being God's beloved. So what I'd like to do now is uh, talk about some uh, personal desert experiences. Um, I'll start with uh, Henry Nouwen, and then I'll move to myself. Well, as I, as I told you, and as many of you know, Henry was uh, a beloved uh, Ivy League professor. He taught at Notre Dame, uh, Yale, and Harvard, very famous uh, American universities. But when he was there, despite the fact that he was packing them in, his uh, lectures in spirituality at Harvard, which is a really, really secular place, Henry was getting 200 and 250 students into his lectures on spirituality. So just sort of unprecedented success. But he was extremely unhappy when he was uh, in academics. So he tried a couple of different things. He went out of the desert. He went out from this place of power that he had to a monastery. He did that twice. He went to uh, the uh, monastery in uh, Genesee in uh, upst upstate New York. And he stayed there for nine months. And you know what? It didn't work. He went and you know you're supposed to be quiet and be prayerful and stuff. Drove him crazy. So he thought, okay, so apparently the monastery isn't for me but he was able to listen to his heart and say, I tried it, and you know what? It didn't work. So he thought, maybe what I need to do is go to Latin America, go to leave, you know, rich United States and go to the poor uh, countries in Latin, Latin America, go to uh, Bolivia and Peru. Well, Henry tried it there, and he, that was an experiment that lasted about six months and it didn't work out there. That wasn't a fit for him. And so finally, um, what he did at age 54, so he was a tenured professor at Harvard at this point, and still desperately unhappy, thinking there's something missing in my life. And what he did is he came to Toronto, he came to Richmond Hill, and he lived in the Larsh community there. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Larsh is uh, an a uh, community started by Jean Vanier 
and it's a community for mentally handicapped people, where mentally handicapped people live side by side with people who aren't mentally handicapped, who are called assistants in the large community, and they share their lives together. And Henry found something when he came to L'Arche. He found his heart's desire. Um, Henry could, uh, and often did, talk not just to 80 people, as I'm talking to today. Henry talked to hundreds of people. When he talked to Crystal Cathedral once uh, in California, he was talking to 2,000 people at once and he captivated them. But Henry always felt empty when he would come home from those things. He was trying to connect and he felt, I'm still not really being held. Something is missing. And when he came to the L'Arche community, people who didn't know he was famous, people who didn't know his brilliant theological insights, uh, but they did, they did know that Henry needed love, and they just loved him, and he loved it. So it was the best. He found his heart's desire. When he came to the Richmond Hill community just north of Toronto, and he knew it, and he says, this is what I've been looking for for my whole life, and I found it. So isn't that nice, a wonderful story of a Harvard professor who resigned his tenured position at Harvard, and he stepped down to live with mentally handicapped people in Richmond Hill. So it's a very happy story, except he also fell apart when he came here. And he fell apart, um, and this is something we didn't know at the time. Uh, Henry died in 1996. Uh, but it turns out that uh, Henry Nouwen, this wonderful Catholic spiritual writer, uh, was a gay man. And when Henry came to uh, Toronto and uh, he found the boundaries went down for him and he started living out of his heart and he fell in love. And he fell in love with another man. And well, you know, I mean, being gay and being Catholic, that's not an easy thing to do, especially in the 1980s. Um, and... Uh, not only that, his, uh, and he has vows as a priest, vow of celibacy, so certain things are not uh, possible for him. Furthermore, the man that he was in love with was not in love with him and actually founded a very suffocating relationship and says, I can't deal with this. And so Henry came and he found his heart's desire and his heart was also broken. So, uh, and as far as this goes, um, I have to say, when you're living from the heart, it is the place of delight, but it's also the place of devastation. That's just, that just comes with the territory. So that's, uh, that's some of Henry's experience. I'd like to talk uh, a little bit about some of my experience, too, and my experience of, of the heart. Um, you know, I was telling you a little bit about my early childhood and about... Uh, about the camera, and I, I brought the camera, and then uh, grade three said, that's not a real camera. And I took the back off to show him that it was, and I exposed the film, and uh, so I was really upset. I was so happy that I had this camera, now I'd wrecked everything. 
And also as a kid, for kids, everything is ultimate. So not only had I ruined uh, this particular film, but I thought I had ruined the camera for forever. So I was devastated. But that's actually the happy part of the story. It gets much worse from there. Um, the principal came. Um, you can see I have a thing for principals. Um, the principal came and, because uh, I, I was crying, and said, what's going on? Sorry, it was a teacher who came out and said, what's going on? And uh, in my despair, uh, I said, uh, this boy made me take off the back of the camera. And so the boy and I were dragged into the principal's office. And uh, under interrogation, I cracked. And, uh, and I said, well, no, I didn't actually, he didn't actually make me take it off. I took it off myself. So now, this is about as bad as it gets for uh, grade one, is that my camera is ruined. It's ruined at my own hand. Um, I've told a lie uh, to the principal, um, and now I'm going to hell. Um, again, you laugh now, and that's okay. I don't, I don't mind that, but that's what I thought. My theology was pretty simple back then. My parents told me, you don't lie, and that's what I had done. And I thought, that's it for me. So you want to talk about a, sort of a devastating experience about what holds me back? That's my answer. That's one of the things that held me back for years. Um, but there are so many devastations. Uh, for me, uh, another uh, desert experience was uh, as a young man, I was uh, in love with... Uh, with a very uh, lively woman, and uh, we were, our personalities were complementary rather than similar, and so, uh, and so this woman was very, uh, very vivacious, uh, very, very lively, sort of very happy, and she found me, you know, very introspective and articulate, and so that was the attraction. Um, and after about uh, two weeks of things going well, uh, they were sort of horrible for the next five years. And so um, we, had, uh, we had a son together, and uh, we separated uh, when he was four years old. And uh, I was, uh, I was uh, voted, uh, you know, in my high school, I was, so to speak, I was voted as least likely person to be a single father. And uh, anyway, I became a single father not of my own will, but that's how it happened. And uh, for years and years, this was a devastation for me. And uh, that's my going out into the desert. Uh, and this last summer, uh, I went to Guelph, to Loyola House in Guelph, uh, for a silent eight-day retreat. Um, it's my third silent eight-day retreat. I just love them, I have to tell you. But this last year, I went, uh, I went there with two questions. And the first question is, what is my heart's desire? What do I want? And the second question is, um, what fears are holding me back? You know, you only get to heart's delight once you've waded through what's holding you back. So that's where I started. So what was holding me back? Um, this is what I did on my first and second day of the retreat, to look into myself and see what is it. And I found out that there are fears holding me back. That's certainly true. But I also found out I'm so much more than that. <laughs> Not only am I afraid, I have lots of other problems too. Um, 
I also found a thing that's holding me back is I was exhausted. I didn't know I was exhausted, but when I went on retreat, I slept for 10 hours straight. I got up, and after I had breakfast, you know what I did? I went back to, I went back to bed. I had no idea I was exhausted. It's so funny, when, you, when you're living outside your heart, you don't know what's going on inside of you. So that's, uh, that's one thing. Uh, there, there is fear, uh, but there's also exhaustion. Oh, and then anger. All this anger started coming out. So that's interesting. And another thing that I found is that I am terribly distracted when I was in Toronto. And it was a discovery for me. When I was in Guelph, I had no internet for eight days. Now, you know, I'm an, I'm an old person. I'm 58 years old. So uh, I can't imagine what it's like for younger people who grow up with technology. But I don't even like it an awful lot. But I'm using it all the time. And when I had eight days away from it, um, it was something else. And without obsessively checking my email every two minutes, I was able to go very deeply and very quickly into my heart. That was a revelation. But just as there have been destructive voices in our lives, for some of us there have been positive voices. Once you stop trying to keep the destructive voices at bay by distracting yourself, you can listen to your heart instead and you'll discover that you have also experienced many affirmations as well. And I'd like to tell you uh, two big ones for me. Um, as a young man, I was, uh, I was quite shy. And when I was 22, uh, my older brother, who's a professional musician, said, Sean, I'm playing uh, three shows in Grand Bend this summer, and I'd like you to play uh, guitar and bass for me. I mean, I never would have volunteered to do this myself. No way would I. I, I would. And even with my older brother, I said, well, you know, Mike, uh, I can't do it for two reasons. The first is you need an electric guitar, and I don't have an electric guitar. And the second is um, one of the shows is playing country music, and I don't know how to play country music. So uh, thanks for the offer, but the answer is no, I can't do it. And at this point, my older brother said, as far as the electric guitar, buy one, and then you will have one. As far as country music goes, it's not difficult. At a time in my life when I needed affirmation, I got it. And he persuaded me to play, and it was a big summer for me. I got much better at electric guitar than I'd ever been before. I learned how to play country music and a bunch of other music. And it's because somebody was able to say, you are my beloved, you can do it. 
Uh, just so, a few years earlier, I came to university. I had no idea what I wanted to do at university. Actually, when I was in high school, my thing was math more than anything. And when I was in first year, again, very, uh, very shy, feeling very lost at this huge university, um, I, uh, I took uh, two science courses, two arts courses, and then I needed, I, there was another course uh, that I needed uh, to take. And I asked my older brother again, what should I take? And he says, you should take a philosophy course because the professor is really funny. And I thought, okay, sounds good to me. I mean, I have no idea what philosophy was. And uh, I took the course and I loved it. And um, the philosophy professor, I mean, he was funny, that's true. But he really didn't have that much of an influence on me. The person who had an influence on me was my teaching assistant who was a graduate student, and there was about 20 people in my tutorial. So this is, I'm 18 years old at this point, and uh, I was asking a lot of questions in tutorial, and my uh, teaching assistant, uh, whose name was Steve, uh, took me aside sometime in October, fairly, fairly early on in the game, and he said, Sean, you're asking a lot of questions, and that's good, because that's how you learn philosophy. I would say that's how you learn anything, is you ask questions. And he says, but you know what, Sean? There's 19 other students in the class, so I cannot spend the whole time answering your questions. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy you lunch every month, and you ask your questions to me. So it's an act of great generosity of this graduate student who had better things to do than to speak to me, but he made me an offer. And this is how I started doing philosophy, because of an act of generosity of another person. And when somebody looks at you, when you feel lost and you feel worthless, and somebody looks you in the eye and says, I want you to play guitar because you can do it. I want to answer your questions because you've got good questions and this is how you learn. So we have these affirmations in our lives as well. It's so important. Now, what difference does listening to your heart make? Why would you want to listen to your heart? Going out alone into the desert and reconnecting with your heart doesn't automatically make you happy. I know some people were reconnecting with their hearts in their reflection and in their small group conversations. And very often when you reconnect with your heart, there's tears. That's part of the story. But I can say this, reconnecting with your heart doesn't automatically make you happy, but it is the condition for the possibility of your being happy. Put another way, if you are seeking power and are distracted from your heart, you will never become happy. So why listen to your heart? What's that? I will. Um, if you are seeking power and are distracted from your heart, you will never become happy. Why listen to your heart? because then you know who you are, 
and you do not depend on the broken people around you for your identity. There will still be as many ups and downs in your life as before, but their amplitude is a little less. And more importantly, you are no longer clinging to others for your identity. It's always a lovely thing when people like you. I don't know any public speaker who gives a talk and when everybody hates it, they say, I don't care. Of course we care. And just so, I don't know anybody who is so conceited that they give a talk, they play music, and people love it. And then for the performer to say, well, I don't care if people like it. Of course we care. That's just human. But there's a long way between um, something being hard when people don't like you and being totally devastated. When, but when you know that you're God's beloved, you can live a full life uh, instead of a life displaying your successes on Instagram. And what I'd like to do at this point is I'd like to read you uh, a story from a book of Henry's called Can You Drink the Cup? And the story is Bill Van Buren's story. And this is, just settle in, this is going to take a little while. One very moving celebration I remember was that of Bill's life storybook. A life storybook is a collection of photographs, stories, and letters put together as a sort of biography. When Bill came to L'Arche Daybreak, and Bill's a mentally handicapped man, as a 16-year-old, he brought very few memories with him. He had had a very troublesome childhood, and hardly any consistent experiences of love and friendship. His past was so broken, so painful, and so lonely that he had chosen to forget it. He was a man without a history. But during 25 years at daybreak, he gradually has become a different person. He's made friends, he's developed a close relationship uh, with a family he can visit on weekends and holidays joined a bowling club, learned woodworking, and traveled with me to places far and wide. Bill and Henry used to give lectures together. They were quite a sight. Over the years, he has created a life worth remembering. He even found the freedom and the courage to recall some of his painful childhood experiences and to reclaim his deceased parents as people who had given him life and love, notwithstanding their limitations. Now there was enough material for a life story book because now there was a beautiful, although painful, story to tell. Many friends wrote letters to Bill telling him what they remembered about him. Others sent photographs or newspaper clippings about events he had been part of, and others just made drawings that expressed their love for him. After six months of work, the book was finally ready, and it was time to celebrate not just the new book, but Bill's life, which it symbolized. Many came together for the occasion in the Dayspring Chapel. Bill held the book and lifted it up for all to see.
I'm allowed to drink water in here. It was a beautifully colored ring binder with many artistically decorated pages. Although it was Bill's book, it was the work of many people. Then we blessed the book and Bill who held it. I prayed that this book might help Bill let many people know what a beautiful man he is and what a good life he was living. I also prayed that Bill would remember all the moments of his life, his joys as well as his sorrows, with a grateful heart. While I prayed, tears started to flow from Bill's eyes. When I finished, he threw his arms around me and cried loudly. His tears fell on my shoulder while everyone in the circle looked at us with a deep understanding of what was happening. Bill's life had been lifted up for all to see, and he had been able to say, it was a life to be grateful for. Now Bill takes his life storybook with him on his trips. He shows it to people as a man who believes his life is not something to be ashamed of. On the contrary, it is a gift for others. The cup of sorrow and joy, when lifted for others to see and celebrate, becomes a cup to life. It's so easy for us to live truncated lives because of hard things that have happened in our past, which we prefer not to remember. Often the burdens of our past seem too heavy for us to carry alone. Shame and guilt make us hide part of ourselves and thus make us live half lives. We truly need each other to claim all of our lives and to live them to the fullest. We need each other to move beyond our guilt and shame and to become grateful, not just for our successes and accomplishments, but also for our failures and shortcomings. We need to be able to let our tears flow freely, tears of sorrow as well as tears of joy, tears that are as rain on dry ground. As we thus lift our lives for each other, we can truly say to life, because all we have lived now becomes the fertile soil for the future. But lifting our cup to life is much more than saying good things about each other. It's much more than offering good wishes. It means that we take all we have ever lived and bring it to the present moment as a gift for others, a gift to celebrate. Mostly, we are willing to look back at our lives and say, I'm grateful for the good things that brought me to this place. But when we lift our cup to life, we must dare to say, I am grateful for all that has happened to me and led me to this moment. This gratitude which embraces all of our past is what makes our life a true gift for others because this gratitude erases bitterness, resentments, regret and revenge, as well as jealousies and rivalries. It transforms our past into a fruitful gift for the future and makes our life, all of it, into life that gives life. The enormous individualism of our society in which so much emphasis is put on doing it yourself 
prevents us from lifting our lives for each other. But each time we dare to step beyond our fear, to be vulnerable and lift our cup, our own and other people's lives will blossom in unexpected ways. Then we too will find the strength to drink our cup and drink it to the bottom. So Henry goes on to say, in fact, whatever your deepest wound is, the deepest wound is potentially also your greatest gift. I know that sounds stupid, but let me explain. First of all, be careful here. Henry never says that our deepest wound automatically becomes our greatest gift. On the contrary, uh, this is a... Uh, this is Henry responding to somebody who's reviewing his uh, a book of his. On page uh, 10, you write, Now one would agree that we minister best out of our needs and our wants. Henry says, this is incorrect. It does not really represent my thinking. My opinion is not that we minister best out of our needs and wounds, but that we minister best when we have recognized our own needs and we have attended to our own wounds. Our needs and wounds can only be a source of our ministry when they have been acknowledged and given appropriate attention. When we would minister to others out of our own needs and wounds, we would do harm to them. It's very important for us that we recognize how our needs and wounds can be a great source of our suffering and call us to an ever fuller surrender to God's first love, the love that can fulfill all our needs and heal all our wounds. As long as our needs are raw, our raw needs, and our wounds are open wounds, we will inflict wounds on others and create needs in others without realizing it. But once our wound is tended to, Henry, and this is, I think, maybe his greatest insight, Henry has the insight that we do not heal others in spite of our wounds, but we heal others through our wounds. The healed wound is healing for others. Let me give you some examples. Uh, the first one that comes to my mind is Alcoholics Anonymous. The way that Alcoholics Anonymous works, if you're an alcoholic, you go to an AA meeting, and you have a sponsor. And you know who your sponsor is? An alcoholic. And this is brilliant, because an alcoholic is a great for a sponsor for another alcoholic for two reasons. Number one, the sponsor can't look down on the alcoholic. Why? Because the sponsor is an alcoholic. So it's great. And the second reason why it's so good for alcoholics to have an alcoholic sponsor is the alcoholic sponsor knows all the tricks that alcoholics play. Why do they know all the tricks? Is it they're so smart? Nope, they've pulled them themselves. So when an alcoholic is talking about his drinking and then he's trying to change the subject, the sponsor can say, oh, you're trying to change the subject. 
Interesting, I know what you're doing because I did it. So you see, the wound of being an alcoholic can make you a sponsor for an alcoholic. You can help alcoholics like no one else because you know what it's like. Uh, for Henry Nouwen, he was able to touch people where they were most needy. And you know why Henry was able to touch people where they were most needy? He was needy. When he was little, he was asking his parents all the time, do you love me, do you love me? And he would take no assurance, he would just keep on pestering. And so he sees when people are hungry for love, he looks at that and he says, I know that. He doesn't say, oh, you're so needy, you're so demanding. He says, that's me, I know what that is. So that's how you become a wounded healer. That place where you feel weakest and most incompetent is precisely where you can help people. One of the great shames and wounds of my life was my separation from my son's mother. Uh, for years, it was, uh, it was devastating to me. Um, I don't recommend doing that, but that's what happened to me. And because that has happened, and it's years later, and the wound has healed to a large extent, I feel like I have a special vocation uh, to people who are in marriages where they're struggling and marriages that have fallen apart, uh, have fall apart. And by the way, I can spot a marriage falling apart from 50 paces. Not because I'm so smart, but because it happened to me. And so I know something. And I'm not going to condemn the person. I've been through it myself. And so that is uh, how the wound can become a healing wound. Your greatest wound can become your greatest gift. When you acknowledge your wound and attend to it, instead of being a self-righteous, pharisaic rule follower who condemns others, you can become a wise and compassionate presence who knows how to help others when they're in trouble. You will become pliable instead of rigid. The way the Bible and our first song today puts it, you will have a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. You will experience yourself as living not a half-life, but a full life connected with others instead of uh, living an empty life full of condemnation and unbearable loneliness. And so, um, I'm just about to, uh, to wrap up the talk. I'd like to offer you an, a new image, uh, which is not Henry's image, uh, but uh, I, I, don't, I don't really care. Um, there is a Japanese art called Kintsukuroi. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. But what happens in Kintsukuroi is when a dish is broken, you don't throw it out. Do you know what you do? You mend it with gold. And so you, you can stop lying about whether you're broken or not. You are, but potentially you have gold seams where you've been broken. Well, if you've made it to the end of this, you've listened to the entire day that we spent together with Sean Mulrooney. It was wonderful. It was life-giving and life-changing. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you take time to give it a stellar review or a thumbs up or even share it with your friends and family. As well, you'll find links in the show notes for our website and any content resources or books discussed in this episode. 
There's even a link to books to get you started, in case you're new to the writings of Henry Nouwen. Thank you for listening. Until the next time. Thank you.